at a time when many of the institutions around us are being eroded there is one that still commands respect the indian armed forces at the time of independence the british passed on a professional army to both india and pakistan but while the influence of the army was seen in pakistani politics it has remained unseen in indian politics and that's a damn good thing the military has played an outsized role in many post colonial nations many of which have been plagued with coups and an erosion of democracy pakistan is both a case in point and a cautionary tale the indian armed forces have steadfastly remained far away from politics and this is not just because of good luck but a result of conscious decisions taken by our leaders through the last century and while it's a good thing that the army has stayed above politics it's not quite a good thing that politicians increasingly invoke the army for rhetorical purposes these days it is also not a good thing that our political classes tend to take the armed forces for granted we are lucky to have the armed forces that we do let's not mess it up welcome to the seen and the unseen our weekly podcast on economics politics and behavioral science Please welcome your host Amit Varma. Welcome to the scene in the unseen. In this episode we'll be talking about the Indian Armed Forces and my guest is Lieutenant General Prakash Menon who's the director of the Strategic Studies program at the Takshashila Institution in Bengaluru. General Menon has been a guest on the show before when we discussed nuclear strategy a subject on which he's written a superb book. Both that episode and his book will be linked from the show notes. But before we begin our conversation, let's take a quick commercial break. Are you one of those people who not only loves to read but also wants to write better? If so, I might have something for you. For the last couple of months, I've been teaching an online course called The Art of Clear Writing. Four webinars spread out over four Saturdays in which I share whatever I have learned about the craft and practice of writing over 25 years as a professional writer. The course also includes many writing exercises, discussions on email and WhatsApp, and an interactive workshop. It costs rupees 10,000 or $150. You can check out the details at indiauncut.com/clearwriting. This link will be in the show notes. If you want to bridge the gap between the thoughts in your head and the words on the page, then the art of clear writing might be just what you need. June batches begin soon, so register now. indiauncut.com/clearwriting. Gentlemen and welcome to the scene in the unseen. Thank you, Amit. Before we start talking about the army both in terms of historical context and the structural issues that it faces and so on, tell me a little bit about yourself. Why did you join the army? Well, I actually went to the National Defence Academy, but I did not first join the army. I actually was a naval cadet because I come from a merchant navy family and my father is from the 1940 batch of the dufran and it was during my second term at the nda that i read a book on field marshal romel by a person called desmond young and was motivated to join the army so i took the decision by myself without consulting my father and he was upset about it and gave an application that i want to convert my service from the navy to the army and it was the easiest thing to do because navy at that time was a very small service so uh, it was difficult being becoming a naval cadet but much easier moving from 
the Navy to the Army. So that is how I got into the Army. So I went in, in as a Naval Cadet, came out as an Army Cadet. And one of the things I've realized about other government services, for example, the civil services. My father was an IS officer once upon a time. And one of the things I've kind of realized is that back in the day, people used to enter, say, the civil services and so on with a fair bit of idealism and, you know, wanting to serve the country and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, that idealism has been eroded over the decades. And today, when you talk about the civil services, there's a lot of cynicism, so to say. But in your case, in the case of the army, I am assuming because the army is insulated from, you know, the regular corruptions of uh, daily governance, I'm guessing that would not apply. Like, do you feel there's been a change for why people uh, join the army over the years or? Well, I actually, if you want to draw a comparison, probably there has been a change. There's no doubt because of the changes in the socioeconomic uh, contours of this country itself. And therefore, the background from which people join the army are probably different from what they used to be in the old days. So there has been a change, no doubt. But I think as an institution, the army, once you join it, has got that capacity to keep you motivated and actually bring out the best in you. because. I think that is the institutional capacity because we are based on what we call, and I belong to a fighting arm. I, I am an infantry officer. It is more pertinent that we are kept in such a state of, you can say, motivation that the larger and the outside world is was at that time much more restricted to you. But that is not the case now because... We never had the social media. We never had so much of press. We've never had that much of exposure. So we've really lived in a very confined space. And surely the officer of today does, does not live in that same space. He lives in a space where he's exposed to the daily meanderings of India's politics, the world politics for that matter. And therefore, that exposure itself would have some sort of an influence. But I think the Indian Army still has that institutional capacity to make sure that the officer is still motivated and directed to the right space. And is there also a sense that within the Army, once you're part of the Army, and not just if you're part of the Army, but for your family itself, if you have a family member in the army, like if you're growing up as an army kid, so to say, as the phrase goes, that there is a sort of a separate culture of its own, which is homogenous through the country and which kind of influences how people within the army look at each other and which also insulates themselves from the larger sort of uh, social currents around them. You know, obviously, it has a different value system, which is different from obviously the civilian space. But I think we must understand that the soldiers and the, your leadership come from the same society and therefore they can't purely be divorced from it. And what I found, at least as India's economic growth took place and as market forces sort of enveloped daily life, the value system itself also had to be affected by it. It could not be insulated from it. 
The question always was for the military leadership that how does it adjust to these changes while it assimilates it without being making sure that your military effectiveness is not impacted. That was a challenge of military leadership. It will continue to be the challenge of military leadership. That changes are, in fact, today is much more rapid than was it before. It will continue to impact. The question is, does the military leadership recognize how those changes are to be dealt with? And that becomes, I think, in today's world, much more challenging than, than it ever was before. And you're one of the only two ex-army people who've come on my show, the other, of course, being the historian Srinath Raghavan. And uh, so, you know, I have selection bias here. But within the army, you were an intellectual in the sense that, you know, you've written a book on nuclear strategy and so on, and you've thought very deeply. Is there a tradition of that within the army, within the, the officer class, so to say, or were you always an outlier and an exception? And what's the culture like there in that sense? Uh, well, I would say that at least in the early part of your upbringing, when you were actually a more closer, more combat soldiering, which you do, there is really no no time and no space for the type of intellectual activity which you can probably indulge in after you've finished your active combat life, and which means that you are a colonel, which means you finished command of a unit, then. Of course, that experience, you can actually move in that space. And I think there are, not all, but there are quite a lot of people actually who go because of their, and this is all up to the officer themselves. The, the institution actually gives you the opportunity, but it's entirely up to the officers whether you want to, re how much you want to read, how much you want to write about, how much you actually want to project and develop the idea. So, my particular path was driven by the fact that in 1998, India went nuclear. I was at that time a colonel, and I was interested to find out what it meant for the armed forces and what sort of a, how does the role of the armed forces change because we are now a nuclear power. That drove me because my thoughts were actually not in consonance with the views which and my peers and the seniors which I had drawn. And I decided that I must find out. So that is why I therefore took study leave. I did my doctorate, finally converted that into a book. And that's how my journey was lost. So I think it's an individual journey. And there are a lot of people like that. To sort of get back to history, you know, we often think of the Indian Army as something that we inherited from the British and we just carried on as we were, which, of course, raises the extremely big question of why is it that essentially both India and Pakistan inherited essentially the similar army, similar officers trained in exactly the same way. But Pakistan, of course, has been beset with military dictatorships and the military has always been a part of their politics. And we've completely escaped that. And one interesting fact which I hadn't thought about before, which I got from Stephen Wilkinson's book um, on the Indian Army, which will be linked from the show notes, is about how the British Army was specifically set up for a very different purpose than what uh, the post-colonial armies would have to do. The purpose of the Indian and the Pakistani armies, of course, would be to defend the borders and so on. You're defending the nation against external threats. Whereas the whole point of the British army was to control the native population. And to this effect, they carried out 
what is famously known as a divide and rule policy, which applied to the army in the sense that they constructed a colonial Indian army to quote Wilkinson, quote, the colonial Indian army was deliberately constructed both to maximize its fighting potential and to hedge against the threat of any repeat of a mutiny like that had almost ended British control in 1857. Stop quote. And what they did was they recruited within the army from what they considered the martial races. So there were many more Punjabis and Pashtuns and there was a heavy imbalance that way. And what happened after sort of colonization ended across the world was that in many countries, because it followed this kind of policy, you invariably had clashes between the army, which was controlled by minority interests against uh, majority democratic forces at large, ending in many cases, as we've seen it with Pakistan. But in India, it didn't happen. You know, Nehru famously wrote to his defense minister in 46 or 47, where he said that this is something we must specifically watch out for. The Congress had been thinking about it for more than 20 years. And B.R. Ambedkar had written a book in 1941 called Thoughts on Pakistan, where he predicted that it was because of this compositional makeup that, you know, Pakistan would have trouble with this army. And we were actually better off letting Pakistan form because what would happen is we would get rid of a lot of these problems. How did that play out? Can you tell me a little bit about how the army... See, actually, if you look at the army, don't forget that the army was initially part of the presidencies, you know, we had. so. They were in different geographies. And of course, the Britishers were very conscious of the fact that the loyalty of the army was absolutely vital for retaining power within the country. So then that's how they devised what, what you described as divide and rule. And then they it's a very artificial construct called the martial classes. And they sort of put their faith in these classes and recruited more from there so that there was no one particular class which would be strong enough to take over. So they actually put the eggs in many baskets. That's what they did. So, you know, they even had the Gurkhas actually uh, in the Indian Army itself. So you could use the Gurkhas against somebody else. And all this came about from the lesson of 1857. is rooted there. And that's how they structured the army itself. So at independence, when we lost whatever had gone to Pakistan, the idea of the martial classes and they are being still in the regiments which we were, actually, that was not the change which was attempted. The change which Jawaharlal Nehru was conscious about was of how does he make sure there is sufficient civilian control on the military. And that was his focus. because. Over a period of time, he saw that the military had taken control. So the, the issue was, the, at the heart of the civil-military relationships in India, that what sort of uh, control does the civilian exercise on the military? And that's where the Ministry of Defense, which was in charge, and made some changes. Initially, the chiefs actually were called the chiefs of staff, and they were also commanders-in-chief. So while they were in Delhi and carrying out their staff activity, when they went to the field, then they were commanders-in-chiefs. And without consultation of the chiefs, the commanders-in-chiefs nomenclature was taken off. Uh, there was a big debate about it. The chiefs actually protested. But finally, 
they were overruled and they were told to accept. And Nehru made this announcement in parliament. So the Nehru's consciousness of the fact that the control need to be exercised has been the main factor initially by which control was exercised by the politician and that control began to be exercised through bureaucratic control. And that is where even the idea of attached offices or that the services were attached offices were all bureaucratic constructions to ensure this control was kept. So as we go on and as we come to the present times, it is this control which has probably kept India different from our neighbors and the rest of it. That was one point. And that is, we must give uh, credit to the politicians. But I think we should also credit the institutional leadership for it. Although I think uh, just the other day, I think somebody has dug up a, a letter from uh, Kariyapa, I think, to the prime minister saying that for some time, the army should rule with the help of the president so that the politics can, you know, there was this, I don't know whether it is genuine or not, but I saw, I recently read it. But I think it would probably be incorrect because this Karepa was supposed to have written much after he has left the army when he's a civilian. It already stood for elections and lost twice and so on. So this is not something which he was thinking about when he was in service. Whoever was in service and whoever the military chief were very clear. And that's, I think, the institutional value which has been passed down from independence to nowadays, that we must remain an apolitical institution. I think this is a value which it is imbibed in the military leaders and it is something which is endured. Of course, there will always be exceptions to the rule. Somebody might say something at some point in time but I don't think you would find anybody who is wearing the uniform saying something contradictory to this. It would be very difficult. It would have been said by somebody who is already out of uniform. So I think there are two things here. One is the consciousness of the political leaders which made, made sure that the control is exercised. And the other one was of the military as an institution itself which sort of embedded in itself the value of being a political. So I think that's why both these things in combination has kept it the way it is. In fact, it's interesting that, you know, when he took over, General Kariyapa famously sent out a circular to the officers he commanded saying that we must stay away from politics. And, but after he retired in 1953, and again, quoting from Wilkinson's book, he argued on several occasions for, quote, a suspension of civil liberties, the imposition of emergency precedence rule on the states, the disbanding of political parties, suspension of parliament until law and order had been restored, and the replacement of universal suffrage with a franchise that was restricted to literates. Uh, stop quote. But this is all, like you said, after retirement, and no serving officer has ever kind of uh, uh, said things of this sort. What was uh, sort of really interesting, like along with uh, what you pointed out, that a lot of the control was, uh, you know, the defense ministry was on the ascendant, and a lot of that control was taken away from the army. But another sort of uh, direction that Nehru tried to move in was to change the martial composition of the army itself. And it's interesting that in 1949, the Indian government basically announced that we shall now be open to all able-bodied men from all across the country. 
But there was a caveat here which did sort of uh, affect the way things worked out in practice. Again, I'll quote Wilkinson, uh, quote, the specific wording of the army promises and orders given in 1949, which stated that new infantry and artillery regiments would be open to members of all provinces and that all other branches of the army would be open to members of all provinces, had much less effect in broadening out the army than most politicians thought it would. This was because, as the generals knew, the infantry and armored corps had expanded in World War II by adding new battalions to existing class regiments rather than through the logistically much more complex and uncertain step of adding whole new regiments, training centers, recruitment areas and fighting traditions. Since independence, for instance, the Punjab regiment, which recruits mainly Sikhs and Dogras, has increased from 5 to 29 battalions where the Rajputana rifles has increased from 6 to 21 battalions because expansion has largely happened through the existing regiment. So now while uh, there is this tendency from within the army of sort of um, finding a Jugaru way around actually changing uh, the ethnic composition, you do find that, for example, one of the ways in which Nehru sort of controlled that was um, through making sure that the chief of army staff reflected far more diversity. So in fact, in between 49 and 79, if I remember correctly, there was only one uh, chief of army staff from the so-called martial races, which is the Punjabis, which was General Thapar and uh, after we came to Krishnaman and appointed him. But the rest were from uh, sort of all over the place. Uh, despite the fact that at the time of independence, the army, you know, 50% of the officers were Punjabis and 26% Sikhs. So it's it's kind of interesting that the political class is trying to weave the army in a particular direction and, and the army itself is sort of... Uh, how, how do you view yeah, it? I, I, firstly, especially about the the fact that the chiefs were chosen because of their... from their uh, regional roots. I don't think that was ever the case. And I don't think that was a point of consideration. Chiefs were purely chosen depending upon their seniority and their merit and the combination of both. So I don't think this issue really is true. But I think... What I mean, we, this is what Wilkinson says. I, 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 so, I yeah. agree. I, I just sort of disagree with Wilkinson sure. on this mm-hmm. point. But but I think the other point which he makes, which was about the composition of the fighting arms, which was the infantry and the armored corps. In fact, I belong to a regiment which was the first regiment raised by that time General Karyapa which was an all india class composition that means we did we could recruit anybody from any part and that we remain therefore the only regiment which is the fighting among these old regiments which is all india class the rest have continued to be what they were which means the rajputana rifles primarily from rajasthan up punjabis sikh sikhalai bihar madras and so on this is the regimental system which has refused to change. And the f- only attempt to make this change, which is serious, was after Blue Star when the Sikh regiments, some of them had mutinied. And actually, there was this study which was ordered. And this there was major resistance from the infantry regiments themselves because the infantry leadership felt that the fact that you could have groups of men from a particular geography always had strengths as far as fighting is concerned, food habits and so on. Although all these beliefs have been demolished by 
the regiment I come from that we don't we get people and we we still have we we have got a Pramvir chakra we got enough laurels so this idea but it has endured it has not been possible to actually have an army with the fighting arm all all the rest have changed the artillery has changed the engineers have changed everybody else has nearly changed not fully nearly changed the infant the fighting arms have only the new raisings whatever was used the, the new battalions they have mostly especially outside the fighting arms mostly been based on all india class composition so we have this anomaly and in my personal view we should at some point in time migrate into an all india class composition and i'll tell you why i'm saying this because i come from an all india class regiment you see if you were in a gurkha battalion the gurkha battalion will have strengths which are confined to the strength of the gurkhas which means they'll be good at boxing they're sports good at boxing but they won't be good swimmers they won't be good basketballers whereas if you come to my regiment and my unit you'll find that because of the all india class we have strength from across the spectrum you've got boxers swimmers so, and yeah i mean so the the strength will always be better if you have an all india class and therefore this idea but you know the orthodox uh, infantry uh, leaders would disagree with me because they belong to that school of thought where they have been brought up from a madras regiment the idea that a madras regiment can actually have an all india class will be anathema to the very system by which they have been grown up and not that they, I mean, those battalions are as good or as bad as mine but i would think from a much larger perspective the indian armed forces must finally all be all india class if we have to migrate in fact the study which i am talking about which was uh, done actually suggested to do that we should do this in 30 years time of course in india if somebody is suggesting to do anything in 30 years time that means they know that it's not going to be done it was never done so we had some experimentation and finally it was put to sleep so we have not made that change but we should in my point of view no in fact just thinking aloud i mean the whole thinking about the martial classes was of course based on the very simplistic way in which the british tried to make sense of india when they first came i mean i had an episode with manu pillay a while back where we spoke about caste and you know manu made the point that it's the british who made it fashionable to look at the entire country through the lens of the varna system but caste actually was far more complicated than that and and this whole theory of the martial races also seems to me a way of the british just trying to quickly categorize everything for the purpose of making a uh, sense of it but it's all nonsense but nevertheless the fact is that a lot of this thinking percolates through and which leads to this sort of very amusing construction where uh there is a certain set of conventional thinkers who say that no within a battalion you must have like the punjabis together and the gurkhas together because there'll be better integration and there'll be better fighting units because they'll fight better together which as you point out is not true but that belief nevertheless persists and at the same time there was this determination within the political classes that we must have an all india composition because that reduces the chances of the army coming together against us because you have less chance of that kind of consensus forming if you have diversity and one of the compromises was that the army's infantry battalions for example were structured in these fixed class units where for example you'll have the 
Punjab Regiment Battalion have two companies of Sikhs and two of Dogras, and a typical JNK Rifles Battalion will have four different groups: Dogras, Gurkhas, Sikhs, and Muslims. Thereby also satisfying those who say that no, you need to keep the Sikhs together, and also ensuring some kind of diversity within a regiment, so they're not actually going to stand up and plot against the government, as it were. You know, India is strong when we are mixed up. The more identities that we have. is where the problem actually is it's not by demolishing these identities i'm not talking about that exactly i'm not talking about that at all but the fact is when we are together then we bring our individual strength because the strength comes from the diversity that you can have different strengths in the same place because they are mixed the example i gave you of a gurkha battalion or uh, let's say of uh, uh, let's say you have people from bihar and you have adivasis there they be very good at hockey okay but they may not be good at something else so if you have everybody makes you'll be strong in every place so the idea that we should have all india class is something which is been accepted officially but we are not able to do it because entrenched beliefs and interests keep that from happening although but within the army the when, entrenched uh, beliefs are although let army. me tell you it is now only confined to the which is a large part which is the fighting arm with the infantry regiments and i think some armored core regiments i think armored core also has shifted so it still remains an infantry sort of uh, fortress but you were of course in an all india class so it doesn't yeah. apply to you but within the army uh, are there then these entrenched in group out group stereotypes like within a sikh regiment would you have internal sense that oh we are better than those guys and so on so that's the point that they believe and then this is the school of thought that when you are part of a fighting arm your fighting spirit and your camaraderie comes is most stronger when you're with your own people that's what the belief is i'm saying that i have come from an all india class regiment and we have demolished that belief because we have actually been in combat my of the our units been in combat and they have performed as well as any other so this belief itself has been disproved but yet it endures because people still have that belief so you know before we move on i'll quickly sum up you know uh, three of the possible reasons that have been cited by wilkinson for why our civil military relations did not go the same way as pakistan did and tell me if you have something to add or elaborate upon these where point one he makes is that their socio economic strategic inheritance of pakistan was far worse in 1947 compared to india because they not only had to look after their border with us they had to look after their border with afghanistan and they were separated from east pakistan for so long and because of this they needed to sort of strengthen the army and also the ethnic makeup uh, the ethnic imbalance in their army was worsened ours was slightly better but because of the flows of uh, partition theirs remained very punjaban pashtun uh, dominated with practically no bengali influence at all which you know had a huge role to play given that the majority of the population was actually in what was then east pakistan the second factor according to wilkinson is that uh, the political institutionalization of the congress party compared to the muslim league that it had far deeper roots far greater support so therefore when they set out to reform the army you knew that they have the popular support and you can't um, sort of mess with uh, these guys and plus they were representative in terms of the ethnic and religious uh, distribution within the congress which of course was not the case with the muslim league and 
Pakistan. And third, what you've referred to, the specific coup proofing and the balancing measures that the new Indian state undertook, partly because you had these decades of thinking which had gone on on how to control the military when we get independent, because this was something that they were sort of worried about. Did the China war change how people thought about the Indian military and how the military looked at itself? Because, you know, after the loss to China, there would have been the imperative to just grow the army as fast as possible. China war actually was the, of course, the defense minister had to resign. And it also cast a shadow on the civil-military relationship in terms of whether how much of interference should they be by the politicians in the military affairs, especially its leadership and even actually deciding them. There was no dialogue. They were told to do things which they were not capable of doing because they didn't have the equipment and so on. So the main thing which came out of 1962 was that there was an insufficient dialogue to actually be able, the army had to be told what it to be prepared for, it was not given the wherewithal to flee. So it, it worked both ways. So the army had its own pathologies which afflicted it and the politician had it. It came together in 1962. But that's probably the lowest point at which we, from where we must think that we have only improved from there on. Because 1962 certainly is both on both sides of the civil-military divide. The military also was not seen in a good light and so did the politicians. So one can blame the other, but we must admit that everybody was to blame because it can't be just one side that you blame and the other doesn't take it. So it, it has to be a joint affair. So from that low point, I think, is a realization that things need to change. Whether it just changed fast enough or sufficiently is a matter of debate. But that's the lowest point. And I guess at this point, you know, there are these dual imperatives. One is the imperative that the army has to expand massively. But the other is the political imperative, which is still there, which Nehru articulated, that we don't want the army to get too powerful because we don't want a situation like in Pakistan, because these are still the young years of the Indian Union. It's been like 15 years since independence and so on. And one of the ways in which they kind of did this was by far more surveillance of top generals. Like Lieutenant General S.D. Verma wrote a book in um, uh, 1988 where uh, he kind of, uh, the, the book is called To Serve With Honours, where he kind of uh, uh, described how his telephone used to be tapped and when he once went, he wanted to talk to the commanding officer, General uh, Thimaya, they actually, uh, and this was in Kashmir, the two of them took a boat out in the middle of the Nagin Lake as it then war, uh, was to make sure that they're not being overheard. And typically you take such precautions when you're worried about being overheard by a foreign country. And in this case, it was uh, sort of, um, you know, your political partners, so to say. So was there sort of an early distrust between the army and the politicians which gradually settled down to some kind of equilibrium? Or I think the distrust would be a natural thing to happen because just look at the political leaders at that point in time, not only in our neighborhood and even in the rest, especially in Africa and so on, there were militaries which were actually taking over government. So it was more the norm than anything else. So why wouldn't it have sensitized our political leadership to be cautious about our own? Whether they tapped their phones, how they have kept vigilance on them, I am not aware of. But if they did, we must know that they would have done it for good reason, not because they 
wanted to hear what the conversation was because what was at the back of their minds was the fact that this possibility existed if this happened and i think no political leadership ever should ever be complacent about this because that i think is the duty of the civilian because the military has its own way of gathering a particular type of momentum which must be kept under control to say that the military can be autonomously do's job and that is why this whole theory of civil military relationship is about the fact that one need to understand the other and as far as the civilian is concerned there must be civilian control the complaint in our case has always been that it's not civilian control it's bureaucratic control and that's where the military has always been complaining about but that bureaucratic control probably the bureaucracy will say was being exercised on behalf of the politicians and the politicians actually given that so the point at issue is i don't think at any time should in a democracy should the civilians be complacent about let the military have an autonomous existence and they can do what they want i think they must always be watchful because it is the natural proclivity of the military to 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 claim that autonomy because they think that the sphere in which they are actually is so specialized that nobody should interfere in it which is where the contradiction is that today where where say there a nuclear power certainly the military cannot be as one model suggests that military will be told what to do by the politicians and the military will be given full freedom to do the way they want to i afraid i don't agree with that model because everything that you do and the type of wars that you fight today and especially under a nuclear hangham has to be have civilian control over it and i think the person who describes this best is clausewitz where he says that the rational part of military affairs once once military is in action can only be controlled by the politicians because he represents the rationality otherwise military acquires a momentum of its own which is unstoppable so the very idea that there should not be civilian control and military can be autonomous once given the job i do not agree with that the model which we probably have and i think kargil is a good example of how despite the objections of the military or even not even consulting them it clearly it was laid down that you will not cross the line of control to a soldier and purely in operational terms it doesn't make any sense and and, and what you're saying is that those geopolitical reasons must always take precedence over military reasons I, I, and therefore the, the civilian and the Indian politician judged. at that time just laid it out i mean they I mean, they refused to budge from it so they did not even consult the military about the decision they just told them that this is our decision and that i think is the right thing to do because if and especially where a nuclear part day it becomes more more so because you can't allow the military to do what they want when there there are nuclear weapons which can come into play so i think this idea the main complaint has always been from the armed forces 
that this control the armed forces accept is required. But it cannot be exercised purely in terms of procedures and bureaucratic control, especially as far as defense planning is concerned. While nobody intervenes in operational terms once you are given your constraints that you can't do this, but where the complaint has been mostly is that you're not sufficiently in the decision-making when you have to acquire, when you have to modernize, you need the type of equipment for the type of threats. That's been the main complaint. It's not about how wars are to be fought and so on. That is not the thing. It's about preparing for the war and the wherewithal which has to be made available to it, which means these are political decisions. What is the budget going to be? Where can you buy it from? All these decisions, some of it, and the large, this thing has always been that instead of political control, bureaucratic control has been exercised. And that's been the complaint. So I, I have three sort of follow-up thoughts on this. One, of course, is, I mean, it's very interesting to me that you should say that, I, I obviously agree with you, that you should say that civilian control over uh, military is paramount. But it, it seems to me that, you know, tapping of phones was kind of a crude way of uh, uh, doing that. Like, you know, uh, what S.D. Verma describes in his autobiography is that after General Thimaya, who was the chief of armed staff, he had a fight with V.K. Krishnaman and, and he left. And then S.D. Verma called him to commiserate. And he realized that after he had called him to commiserate, he was cut off by the powers Red B, which basically means that they had listened to his telephone call, which is how he first found out about the tapping, which he later confirmed. And um, it strikes me that it's rather than resort to crude measures like actually you're surveilling your uh, top uh, army officers, it's actually far better to have rules of the game in place, which introduce their own safeguards, which brings me to the next question where I'd like you to elaborate upon what you mean by the distinction between civil control and bureaucratic control. That if one accepts a principle that the civilian administration should have control over the army, uh, over the armed forces, then what is this distinction? I mean, they'll do it through bureaucrats, obviously. So what is this distinction and where is it a problem? Actually, this goes to the heart of the civil military issue, that the military instrument has got its peculiarities, which the military probably knows best about the instrument. The civilian and the civil political leadership are actually not conversant with this instrument. And that is why this instrument firstly has to be shaped to meet the needs of what the politicians want. Which means the politicians have to first tell the military, give the political guidance to the military that this is what we would want you to do if you have to do anything. Which is the political guidance which is given to. The military has to translate that political guidance into military terms and shape the instrument that it wants. When it does that, and that the military is the best thing for this translation, but firstly, therefore, the military has to understand what this political guidance is. The politician has to understand what sort of political guidance should be given to the military. So there has to be this understanding between the two because they belong to two different worlds. The political leadership is normally, unlike the military, they are short term in their outlook and also they are a contingent. This is they work for in terms of what is the contingencies where. Whereas this instrument cannot be dealt with like that. This instrument has to be dealt as a long term instrument. 
Can you give me a concrete illustrations of that for a layperson like me, so I can understand it better? Of a, what is the political purpose which results in a particular military instrument, which then can be screwed up by the short-termism of the political class? So, so suppose we have, let's say, two adversaries. One is north, and one is to the west. Now, it is for the political leaders to tell you what sort of political objectives, if there is a war, that you need to achieve as far as Pakistan is concerned. This is what you should be able to achieve. Or if there is a war here. Now, this political objectives cannot be crystallized unless there is a dialogue between the civil leadership and the military. It cannot be done independently of the military itself because it requires an understanding of the military instrument and those and the military instrument has to understand what these guys have won. And this is the dialogue which will only make it possible. So then you need to have mechanisms by which this dialogue is taking place. One of our greatest deficiencies has been this, that there has been lack of political guidance to the military itself. So in, in the lack of guidance, the military assumes certain things and decide that we want. Now, in the military also, there are three different services. So it's well possible that all the three services will think in three different ways. The Navy will think about what is in the maritime arena. The Air Force will think about, how, about air power. And this is about land power. There's nobody who's going to put it together. And that's, that's why you need structural mechanisms for this to take place. And all this came to be and realized only after the Kargil War that we need, firstly, political guidance. And that is why we, we had these new institutions like the National Security Council Secretariat, where I have served. But yet, India still doesn't have a national security doctrine or a strategy which is the mother document from which the rest has to flow. So in the absence of that mother document, there are certain assumptions which the defense ministry itself is making, probably with some guidance. And that is why they have, we have now, they have made a defense planning committee with the NSA as its head, and it's actually located within the uh, Ministry of Defense. But these are all ad hoc mechanisms. They're not structures which will probably endure for long. So one of the problem has been there is less understanding of the politicians of what this military is capable and not capable of. And 1962 is a good example of when Nehru said, you know, you throw them out. I mean, he gave me this statement, throw the Chinese out. He had no idea what the capability then of the armed forces were because, you know, by which time they were under-equipped, they did not have the road infrastructure, although enough studies were done before the 1950s which said that we must develop this infrastructure against China, but it was not done. So this, the, this lack of understanding of each other is what is at the heart of a civil-military problem. And therefore, you need a constant dialogue between the two. So an illustration that comes to mind and tell me if it works as an illustration of what you're describing is in fact the Bangladesh war. 
where, for example, the political objectives were clearly different on the two borders. Whereas at first on the Bangladesh side, there were covert operations. And then when war actually began, the objective on the Bangladesh side was we go in and we do whatever it takes. But the objective on the Pakistani side was simply we hold the border. We are not marching to Lahore. So would this be an accurate example of a political objective which then needs to be communicated to the army so it can then plan accordingly? And it can go wrong if you just have bureaucrats in the defense ministry directing operations. Yeah, I say bureaucrats, they don't direct operations. But the example that you gave, in fact, let me tell you that the Indian Army was not tasked to actually capture Dhaka, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. That, that was... You know, that happened afterwards. I, I have an episode with Srinath Raghu yeah, where he describes it, it, that in detail about yeah, how one so particular... It, so it happened afterwards. But 71 was one of the places where there is sufficient guidance given to the armed forces. So they knew much more about what they could do. Let's take another example. And that is Operation Parakram for that matter. Where the guidance, what Prime Minister Vajpayee told the chiefs were, Kuch karo. What exactly it is to be done was never given to them. So the, all they did was to mobilize. And then they put into action what they thought should be the next thing, which is to capture large parts of Pakistani territory, which is the norm which they have been used to. Not uh, because there was some political guidance given to that. So there's no interaction there between the geopolitics and the military. Yeah, I mean, so actually the lack of clarity of what exactly had to be achieved is what was the problem in Parakram, and we know what happened. So this lesson is with us. Historically and so on, in every report that we need to have, we have this. So the, the, this has been identified. It's not that. So that is why this defense planning committee, which was in, I think, 2018, they've, they've constituted one of the tasks which is given to them is to come out with a national security strategy. It is not the case that there was no strategy before that the National Security Advisory Board or the National Security Council Secretariat was ever instrumental in actually getting a strategy out. But it never found political acceptability. So we don't have it. I mean, so so we are here, which actually now getting into geopolitical, let's say, turbulence, and we still lack a document, a mother document, which will guide the development of our armed forces. So what would this national security strategy or this mother document, as it were, what would it then lay out? Would it sort of lay out geopolitical considerations that would limit and guide your military actions? Like in the instance of Parakram, for example, would it have laid out that, yes, you can mobilize, but kindly do not invade because we don't know how they will respond and it could be nuclear? And does it embed those kinds no, of... No, 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 not at all. This is about the type of military instrument you want to develop. Where What are the capabilities and the capacities that you want to have? One of the first meta questions which require to be answered and it has to come from political guidance. It has to be answered by the military, but it has to come from political guidance. Where do we, what is the balance between continental and maritime power that we must have? How do we strike this balance? Should we put our efforts to become a strong thing in the Indian Ocean where we have the maximum potential, utilize it? Or should we be able to capture large parts of territory in Pakistan and in Tibet. These are choices that you have to make. Or do we defend in the north 
or and do we defend in the west and then do we actually have more capability for projecting power in the oceans these are choices but these choices the military cannot make by itself it has to come from a political guidance that that is what i'm, I'm talking about you might call it a national security doctrine or a strategy in the absence of that documents is where we are having this problem where we have our the clarity I mean, it will never be clear. We'll always actually have difficulty because defense planning essentially is about trying to see, balance your resources with the type of threats that you have. And the military, therefore, will have to plan not what it wants to do, what it can do with the resources it is likely to be made with. So even on that front, it has not been clear as to the type of budgets you can plan out. So that is another defense planning problem which has endured, has not been resolved as yet. And therefore, although a defense planning committee has been announced, we are not quite clear as to where they have reached and whether the situation has changed. But the essential problem still remains, which is the root of the problem, which is the lack of political guidance. In the absence of the political guidance, we have something which we call the, the Defense Minister's Directive. That's a document which the Defense Minister gives to the three services on which they can plan. But the Defense Ministry does not have the type of expertise to, uh, let's say, write this directive. So this directive is mostly written by the military itself, goes to the Defense Ministry, who then probably adds or minus it and comes back to the same guys who have written it. So it's it's something which you have devised and it's really certainly not what you actually want. So, you know, this again gets me to actually a question of economics, but not in the way you'd uh, expect. We'll take a quick commercial break and when we come back, we'll continue with this conversation. If you're listening to The Seen and the Unseen, it means you like listening to audio and you're thirsty for knowledge. That being the case, I'd urge you to check out Storytel, the sponsors of this episode. Storytel is an audiobook platform that has a massive range of audiobooks from around the world. Their international collection is stellar, but so is a local collection. They have a fantastic range of Marathi and Hindi audiobooks. What's more, I do a weekly podcast there called The Book Club with Amit Varma, in which I talk about one book every week, giving context, giving you a taste of it and so on. Download that app and listen to my show and as long as Storytel sponsors this show within this commercial itself, I will recommend an audiobook that I liked on that platform every week. My recommendation for this week is Mitro Marjani by Krishna Sopti. This examination of the unexpressed desires and sexuality of a married woman took conservative India by storm when it was released in 1966. And it still sounds as fresh and relevant today in 2020. So do listen to it on Storytel. Mitro Marjani by Krishna Sopti. Download the Storytel app or visit Storytel.com. Remember, a Storytel with a single L. Storytel.com Welcome back to The Seen and the Unseen. I'm chatting with General Prakash Menon about the Indian Army. And, you know, in all of this, you were just sort of talking about how if there is a national security doctrine, then that sets the parameters within which all the forces then have to act. Like if you want to be a maritime power, then, you know, the Navy needs to focus on particular things and be a particular size and so on and so forth. My question to you is this, you know, that 
as someone who's into economics you know when i look at say public choice theory uh, what public choice theory teaches us is that you apply the tools of economics to look at how governments function so you know i'll look at politicians i'll look at bureaucrats and i'll say what are their incentives they are human beings responding to a particular set of incentives let me carry that forward now into the domain of the armed forces that i would assume that just as a bureaucrat's main incentives are to maximize his power and his budgets similarly anybody in charge of say armored division or any kind of unit within the armed forces will want to increase their own power and their budgets how do those incentives sort of play out in practice is there politicking within the armed forces to grab resources and in the absence of a national security doctrine as you said does it then become extremely ad hoc that you know which division of the armed forces can lobby the best for higher budgets and does that then determine where the money goes rather than this kind of broader strategic thinking which is coming from uh, um so actually uh as far as the within the army or the navy or the air force there'll always be different elements vying for what you call scarce resources so that is natural in any case but if that is guided by a budget and a prioritization of resources based on what is your capability that you want to develop it is nothing to do with the individual parts as much as it is to do with the capability so you have actually now a system by which you identify capabilities you have a five year capability development plan and that capability development plan has to be a firstly a military plan then it has to be converted as far as in this military in this plan how much what what is the capability the air force needs to have what the navy needs to have the army needs to have within the army what are the elements within the army so it goes down like that so you have to first tackle the problem at the top because unless you tackle the problem at the top this thing will always be there that the guys down below will always be asking for more and trying to see as to how they can get more so that is not what the, where the problem is we have to tackle the problem at which it is from where it originates and that problem is about firstly what is the type of but and this is a political decision and it's a bread sometimes bread versus butter debate uh, that's a political debate how much actually of the public good uh, are you actually going to invest for national security i mean that's just a, it's a political decision so if you look at in the defense budget today is probably the lowest in terms of the gnp since 1962 and that budget actually also been severely constrained by the fact that defense pensions is also boomed so you don't have enough money for maintaining and for capital acquisitions so we have a budgetary problem right now combined with this budgetary problem we have a problem of how do we prioritize depending upon we are not very clear in terms of military capacity we might be clear in terms of service specific capacities you know the the air force wants to have long range bombers the navy wants to have submarines and so on but the fact is that all this has to be measured finally in terms of military capacity so both just how do all these parts fit into a whole which is military capacity and b how does this military capacity then serve the nation's interests which is the national security doctrine as you say uh i'll come back to cost in a moment but 
tell me this it just strikes me thinking aloud that there is also then a lag between geopolitical imperatives on the one hand and the building of military capacity towards that end on the other you know in the rapidly changing geopolitical times that we live in things change extremely fast and so a national security doctrine could presumably be uh, revised constantly but to build military capacity towards any one end must be taking a huge amount of time uh, you know and it how does that interplay work yeah I, I, let me just let me I, i'm not saying that the we have a national security doctrine and strategy and that's the golden key that's not going to be the case at all because the national security doctrine itself would probably have to be constantly updated over a period of time to sort of catch up with what is a changing geopolitical situation so this is not something you do once and it's over it's constantly flowing but is in essence in essence you would have answered the mega questions the meta questions which you had to that will probably not change i think we must differentiate between the use of the instruments and the development of those instrumental capacities that is an operational part how it is applied and that is sort of thing that is not where india lacks by the application of those instruments where we are actually need for improvement is about identifying the type of capacities matching them to the political objectives and then prioritizing its development that is where the area of improvement has to concentrate and is it the case that because you have the army the navy the air force and so on uh, with all their uh, you know their own interest to look after is it then the case that the armed forces operate in these particular silos and and they're not necessarily always pushing towards the same end but in a sense are almost in competition with each other yeah i mean this is you know there are three different geographies so a force pilot looks at the world differently in the land uh, the army guy the soldier on the ground looks at it differently and so does the navy and that is why the consciousness about bringing jointness and that's the word which is used where you need to have integrated organizations which can function together and uh, the so that you can synergize the ability of the others i mean you so for there's first requires to be an individual specific service specific capacity because only uh, the air force can operate in that geography and so is the army but that is insufficient we have to operate together and today bringing this together is what is called jointness and that is it's normally done by integrating it within the same structures and that is why there's this debate about integrated theater commands which we don't have and right now we've got about 17 commands each uh, service has got different commands geographically different located and uh, the good news is that the department of military affairs has been mandated now in the new uh, this thing to bring about uh, the integrated command so we are well past the time of debate between the services and the air force has always been an outlier in this saying that we don't require these integrated commands but that time is now over because the political decision has been taken that there will be integrated commands and the cds has been mandated to make that happen 
So at least that's quite a lot of progress. Let's kind of talk about something you alluded to earlier before the break, which is about costs and budgets. I'll quote from a piece written by Sushant Singh in 2018, uh, though it's still relevant now, where he was talking about uh, uh, the different vice chiefs meeting a parliamentary delegation. And here he quotes, um, quote, the army vice chief told the MPs that 68% of the army's equipment is vintage and the capital budget doesn't even cater for the committed payments of 125 ongoing procurement deals, leave alone provide funds to replace the vintage equipment. There is no budget for making emergency procurements or for providing perimeter security to army camps susceptible to terrorist attacks. The powers to buy ammunition and spares for critical stocking levels needed for 10 days of war fighting have been delegated to the defense services, but not enough funds have been allocated for it. On top of that, the army will be saddled with an additional bill of 5,000 crore due to increased taxes because of GST. But no additional money has been made available for it. Besides paying salaries, there is little else that the army will be able to do with the money given by the government. Stop quote. And, you know, what I often hear from people is that forget the nuclear element of it. If we were to fight a conventional war with Pakistan today, there is a chance that we would lose because of underpreparedness and because a lot of our equipment is so out of date and so on. How true is that? I mean, should we be alarmed? Well, I think... <laughs> To say that we would lose to Pakistan and this just, I mean, just the size of our country and the size of our armed forces itself is fundamentally defeatist and very pessimistic, I'm afraid, and completely disagree with that. I guess I, people who say this do I, it to make a rhetorical I, I, point about... I, no, you don't, you don't fight, let me tell you, with money or you don't fight only with the equipment. You also fight, and that is the strongest, with what you call the fighting spirit. So if the army itself feels, and that's the point I make, that you are you can't fight this guy because that guy is stronger, that means you have lost it before the fight because that means you lost the spirit to fight. Let's assume fighting spirit is equal on both sides because we should also give those guys some credit. Let's assume both sides have optimal fighting spirit. Yeah, but just the, just the sheer size of the armed forces, the sheer size of the air force, and the Navy, and even the, the armed force. Okay, leave aside this rhetorical point that I cited. But in general, do we have a problem in terms of uh, how our equipment, uh, like Sushant pointed out, uh, more than 60% is vintage equipment. And, and, and do we have a problem with uh, uh, modernizing the armed forces? Yes, so uh, that, that, you see, what I know, I'm very, very aware of what the vice chief told the parliamentary committee and so on. And he actually laid it bare, saying that these are all the problems. And he's, he's quite right. Let's not forget that as far as budgets are concerned, this is probably the lowest we have reached since 1962 war. So the, there is an issue with the budget. And the fact that the budgets have remained where it is. When you say lowest, you mean as percentage of GDP. Yeah, as percentage of GDP, actually. Which means you can actually afford, you could afford much more earlier, now you could have much less. The point is, the equipment which we have right now is being constrained not only by budgets, which is a certainty. And the, as I told you earlier, the defense pension is also another issue which is which is impinged on the budget. But also our capacity to design, develop, research, and produce defense equipment of our own 
has has remained practically stagnant despite all the make in india rhetoric uh, we have had all these make in india and so on but the fact is that we haven't moved we still remain one of the largest arms importer in the world it is also a strategic weakness because we have to buy from others and they can always give us stop spares if not anything else in times of crisis this is the defense industrial base of the nation has not progressed to what what it should be and that remains the weakness so we have a weakness of not being able to produce our own arms two of a procurement system which means that even if we don't produce we want to buy it from outside itself is so tedious and so long that it takes a long time to procure it from outside from from another let's say off the shelf in combination that means now you have a budget problem which is going greater and the fact that you can't produce anything also and it takes longer time to procure it from other this is a deadly combination so it is because of this combination that the vice chief of army staff had to now tell the parliamentary committee that this is what is our situation and we need to do about it and i'm sure after he made the statement they probably this a lot of things which happened it is not that we have not ever since 1999 cargill war which was the first major defense reform which was attempted studied and undertaken and many other reforms have are underway the pace is what we must question and that's been very slow what's the structural reason for that uh the is it the bureaucratic nature of how decisions are taken yeah, well, or no actually everybody has got to blame you know you to say that this is only bureaucracy i think is unfair on the bureaucracy firstly the major change there will always be resistance to it the only people who can get over that resistance because there are interests within the institutions that's a drdo within the military itself within the bureaucracy or the only people who can get over that is actually the political leadership and i think what they have done recently which was the creation of the cds and the creation of the department of military affairs is something which is commendable from that point of view that it now these are two changes which were needed badly nobody people had actually given up that this is ever going to happen now it's at least happened but of course everything will depend on the human agency which will take it forward but that we'll have to wait but at least the structural reform which has been done i think is in the right direction so you refer to how cargill for you was a realization of things that were wrong within the system and that also set off various attempts to reform the armed services can you elaborate a bit on that like what went wrong that led to a realization of weaknesses within what were those weaknesses uh, then and uh, you know what has been attempted since you know uh, k subramaniam who actually headed the cargill review committee actually makes the comment that so far we've been generally moving along in a manner that we have been lucky that we have not been badly hurt that it's time that we woke up the and these are not his exact word but this is what he wrote in his in his report and from that report came what is called the group of ministers report in which they looked at internal security looked at intelligence looked at border management and defense defense was looked at by 
Arun Singh, the former Minister of Defense. You know, he is a man who had a particular interest in defense matters. And his report, the Group of Ministers on Defense, is the one which is suggested and uh, the, the changes which we see today, including the CDS. Of course, he had not suggested the department, which is an additional change which has come about. But most of the changes which we are seeing today is derived from that report of Arun Singh, uh, which deals with defense. And he identified that without these structural uh, changes, without actually changes in the budgeting process, all these have been identified. It's all, I mean, the, the report is actually available in the public domain with certain deletions which have been done for security. And we are still actually in the process with the CDS, at least the main defense, this thing has finally been implemented. But it has taken us 20 years to do it. That's a long time. After that, in fact, in 2012, when the uh, government of the day decided that this Cargill, uh, this GOM report, is we we have to go past it because, it, you know, uh, there was no movement on it. That's why they had this Naresh Chandra committee report, the committee which was there. It again gave its report. It is followed by another, this thing of the NDA government called the Shaketkar Committee in 2015. So one in 2012, 2015, they have all made various recommendations. But the problem has always been that you can easily implement recommendations which suits the institutional interests. To implement others, you require political will which must be imposed because otherwise people will either put it to the side, keep it away, delay it. And CDS actually is a very good example of that. That political will has been exercised because even till recently, the previous Air Force chief was very vehemently saying that we don't need the CDS and we don't need theater commands. So nobody was listening now. Political will is what. So I think defense reform, and I'm just just not talking only about high defense organization. Even the one which has not been done, which is the thing about the research uh, uh, and development organization or the defense production organization, without political will, they can't. You can't make any change because you see, there are labor force about nearly uh, slightly under two lakhs. They've got ordnance factories. Uh, which are there. So anything which you do against this thing, they would probably threaten a strike in the, in the public sector. So that is another area which the previous governments have not touched, have not been able to touch, and this government also has not been able to. Hopefully, it should now concentrate its energy on the ministry, on the Department of Defense Production and the DRDO. Because the other aspect, and not that it's not being done, is the fact that we have kept, and for a long period in our history, we kept the private sector out of defense industry. Now, of course, that attitude has certainly changed. And today's paper itself, actually, you know, there's this concept of strategic partnership, and there you have LNT. And one public sector, which is the Mazagon. We're recording this on Jan 22, by the way. <laughs> so there is some context for the listener because you said today's newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the 
Bazicon Dockyard and the LNT had now been approved. And these two can now decide to team up with uh, the OEM, the, the original equipment manufacturer. And I think five of them have also been approved from Russia, France, Germany, Spain, and I think one more country, France. So, you know, uh, this is a new model. We know that that submarine will finally come into the water after it's been produced only probably slightly less than 10 years from now. But these are changes which have slowly taken place. So it is not that we are now at a standstill. We are moving, but as the pace of change is what we have to question. But more than anything else, this is also combined with the fact that there is certainly a dearth of budget for building military capacity for the type of capacity that you want to build. That there is no doubt. So what will happen is when you don't have money, you, you actually will have to delay it. It will cost you much more because of the delay. So this is a political decision. So we'll have to wait and see at least for this year defense budget whether there will be a change in this or not. And my guess is it's unlikely to be because the economy itself is in such a... So this is a political decision. The fact that the public good of national security will have to actually stay in particular place. They probably will not allow it to deteriorate, but I don't think they will be... They can increase this. Therefore, when you have a budget constraint and when you have constraints in your capacity, the armed forces is supposed to make that up by actually devising your operational strategies which you can afford. You cannot keep crying for better equipment, better this thing. The only compensation is then you decide to fight in a particular way. And that is what you call operational genius which will overcome this lack. And that is why military leadership has a major role to play. They can't simply blame and say that we don't have this, we don't have that, therefore we can't fight. No. The idea that technology is the determinant of victory has been disabused in modern war. And I think the fact that the Americans, the most powerful nations in the world, is being defeated by the Taliban who actually just have an AK-47 or the IED, the lowest level of technology, just goes to prove the point. So you have to change your operational concept depending upon the equipment that you can afford. And you can't say that you can't fight because you don't have certain things. This also then brings me to my next question that the decision makers, both within the armed forces and within uh, government and the bureaucracy who are deciding on the future direction that the armed forces takes, are likely to be slightly older people in their 40s or 50s or 60s and so on and so forth. But technology moves fast, military thinking moves very fast. Like what I am reminded of is, you for example mentioned uh, the way the Taliban fights, where equipment is not so relevant. And I remember reading this book by Fred Kaplan called The Insurgents, where he talks about how within the US Army, it took them decades after Vietnam to understand the potency of that kind of asymmetrical guerrilla warfare and how to deal with that. And they learned it so late, in fact, that, um, you know, they made similar mistakes even when they invaded Iraq to begin with. 
And one of the people he describes as carrying the new thinking forward was, of course, David Petraeus, who then took over as the general and kind of changed course to uh, make things work better. But, but my question, therefore, is that the nature of modern warfare is changing completely. And there's cyber warfare, there is more mechanization, there's more AI being used. How much of an issue is it that the decision makers who determine the future trajectory of the army uh, may not be entirely uh, up to speed with the changes that are happening in both technology and strategic thinking? Yeah, obviously, there will be a lag between the people who are there on the top and the guys who actually understand what is the nature of the changes in technology. I mean, that is for sure. The question really is, I don't have to, as a military leader, understand the technology or how it works as much as what is the potential of it in its application. There is not something I don't understand how it works as much as what this is to be used for. That realization is what military leaders should have. And I think most militaries have now actually moved to that point where their military leaders have got this side technical base from which will make this understanding easier. But this lag will always be there at the cutting edge where it's moving too fast for people who are a little older to actually be able to keep them up. So this lag you cannot help, but that's institutionally it has to be made up. You know, the fact that somebody down below will have to take it and show it to somebody else, convince him of it. And that's always will be problematic because that guy may not be able to understand what this chap is talking about. So the point I want to make is, I am not for a moment saying that technology is not important. It is important. It's very important. And therefore, what I'm saying is, you can't always have cutting-edge technology. That cannot be in everybody's position. But you have to fight with the technology that you have. And how you fight that is where your, let's say, your, your, your tactical brilliance comes about. How do you innovate? And that is where the human agency makes the difference. Because all technology will depend upon how it is going to be used. And that's where the human mind is much more important than the technology itself. My question wasn't only about technology, though, but about uh, strategic thinking as well. For example, I'll, uh, uh, you know, um, ask a question in the context of the Indian Army, but in context of what Kaplan's book is about and what uh, counterinsurgency thinking has been over the decades since David Galula wrote his classic piece on it. And the key thinking there uh, is that if you want to win in a battlefield like Vietnam or like, say, Iraq, after you've invaded them, the way Kaplan breaks it up is he calls it 20% military, 80% political. The key lesson that he points out is that you can't just go in and wipe out the first bunch of insurgents and hold a particular piece of land if you're going to treat the local population like shit and turn them all against you. So what you really need to do is you also need to simultaneously, having uh, you know captured whichever city or part of land that you uh, want to capture, you simultaneously have to win over the local population, provide them any governance that has gone missing because of your invasion, and so on and so forth, which is a mistake that the 
the Americans made when they first invaded Iraq, but that they later tried to rectify. The Americans had come to us for probably we would have told them this lesson because this is one of the oldest lessons the Indian army has carried. But General Menon, not in Kashmir. The reason I would hold that we have lost Kashmir and just yesterday we were offline discussing David David Das's book, The Generation of Rage in Kashmir, that what the Indian army has actually done in Kashmir is entirely the opposite. Not true at all. Not true at all. In fact, what the Indian army has done and the doctrine has said the center of gravity is the people. But in and, practice, and, we have treated them so badly. Not, not true. I, I, I completely disagree with that, that we have treated them badly. I don't think that is the case at all. You know, it's a uniform, depending upon the level of insurgency, the type of operations that you carried out, people will be affected. But I think the consciousness that this is all about winning the loyalty of the people is ingrained into Indian Army's doctrine for, I don't know, ever since we actually started uh, uh, using the Army in the Northeast. So that has not changed. And let us not forget that when you do this over a time period which we're talking about, there will be individual aberrations. In some cases, they might be for very, very a short period of time, institutional aberrations. But let me tell you, as far as this issue is concerned, I think the Indian Army cannot be cast in the same light that you are seem to cast it in. It would be completely unfair that the basic teaching, and I've actually served enough in Kashmir to make the point, I think we have been very sensitive to to how to deal with the people. And we were always conscious that it is about the Kashmiris. They are the central gravity. It is their loyalty that we had to win. I think Indian Army should be proud of what it has done. And let us not take those, I'm not saying it's been perfect, those imperfections to say that is the norm. And I think that will be very unfair. I'll, I'll, I'll defer to your experience there and we can agree to disagree. And I wrote a column on this, which I'll link from the show notes. But again, just thinking from an economic point of view, we all know that people respond to incentives and power corrupts, which is why, you know, one of the reasons that our army hasn't meddled much in politics is because there are so many safeguards in place and it doesn't have as much power as, say, the army in Pakistan does. But equally, there are special conditions, for example, in Kashmir or in the Northeast, where the army for large periods of time does have an enormous amount of power, as much so, if not much more than the civil administration over there. Isn't it then inevitable that those incentives will come into play and whatever your doctrine uh, might actually state, whatever the established wisdom within the army might be that treat the people well in the hearts of the people, that what is happening on the ground is slightly uh, uh, different. And of course, I'll defer to your experience in Kashmir and you're absolutely right. That is very easy to cherry pick a few things that have gone wrong and point to those as uh, evidence of something larger. But it does seem to me that one of the ways in which India has failed is in winning the minds and hearts of Kashmiris. I don't think that the army has been... Army might be the object today of their, uh, let's say, anger, because it's a symbol of the state. It is not because what the army has done to the people. So there is a difference here. And I think this difference is very important. I think for an army which has actually spent nearly two decades continuously in a situation of uh, violence, I think the performance has been commendable. It is not 
perfect and I'm not claiming perfection at all. But if you really look at it from the point of view of what was achieved, after all, where we are now and where we were, let's say during these 20 years, we've been at different points in time, we've gone through ups and downs, you know. But it has nothing to do with what the army has done. In fact, whenever the army, the only main aim is to keep violence under controllable levels so that political process can resolve it. What we have failed in Kashmir is not about the army's performance. It's a political it's a, failure. It's a political pro- process that even when violence levels were down, the political process was not put into effect. So I think I would not agree that the army is a cause of the problem there. Definitely not the case. Army is an instrument of the state and therefore people view it as a symbol of the state. So today if they are angry against the state, then obviously that anger will be direct to the army. Not because what the army is doing, because it is part of this state. So I think, you know, I completely disagree with what the notion that you have that the army has done uh, in fact, the the human rights violations of the army for such a large force, if you really look at it in percentage terms, anywhere in the world, probably we would still come up on top. That's a fact. Just in numerical terms. Fair enough. Let's kind of move on to a topic where we would both be on the same page and both equally concerned, which is about the politicization of the army. Now, one of the refreshing things from what I can see is that so far the army in India, like you pointed out, has stayed away from politics, is not being politicized. Is there a chance of that changing over a period of time? Is there something that gives you cause for concern? Well, I think... The chance of that changing can never be ruled out because anything is possible from that point of view. Institutionally, the army is well, very sensitive to the fact that it must maintain its apolitical stance, culture. I think we must not take individuals as symbolic of institutional change because institutional change takes a much longer period of time. We might have a leader here and there who might make a political statement and then you can't say that the army is getting politicized. Although we must always view it as danger signals. And then it is for the institutions to to make the correction. If it does not, then it encourages it. So the danger will be more as time goes on, not less, because the Indian himself is getting to be more politically conscious. He's exposed social media and the rest of it, the information domain itself. The soldier, the officer cadre cannot be any different. So the challenge of the institution is in that sort of milieu, how do you keep the body politic of the institution away from politics itself. And there's nothing better than the leadership being so conscious and not getting into or keeping away from political controversies, especially making statements which are loaded politically. They might not mean it, but the fact is that it's got a political load which can therefore the media can run with and so on. I think There is need for this consciousness. And it it is not now. It is always there. But today it is much more sensitive because you're actually, 
it's like you're on the stage all the time and people are looking at you. So it's a, it's a sports arena where the game is being played and there's a whole lot of people looking at you. So this consciousness definitely have to be part of the military leadership. So what has been the level of autonomy that the army has to, for example, when it comes to things like the appointment of generals and now the appointment of uh, the CDS? And is that a sphere where the political process has played a part in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how are generals selected and can political interference make a difference there? Uh, well, the system is that beyond the particular rank, let's say a lieutenant general's and let's say you want to appoint a CNC or you appoint a chief, then you send a panel. And the, from the panel, the politician actually selects. So this is, therefore, and I think the system is absolutely correct, they should be able to select who they want. The panel is by seniority. and The Pan, then... panel is by seniority and, uh, and, and eligibility, and obviously by seniority. You know, seniority is one issue which you can't totally discard in a, in a hierarchical organization like the military. I mean, does it so, just to go on a tangent, like in the IAS, what often happens is your initial rank when you're 21 and your initial rank in the civil services examination will basically determine the order for the rest of the career when you become cabinet secretary and so on, except in very rare circumstances. Is it like that in the army or do you constantly have evaluations as you move through the no, ranks? No, it's the same. Actually, uh, the order of your passing out from where you are, I mean, what rank have you passed out will, will determine your seniority and it will remain that till the time you are. Unless you miss a promotion board and you, you drop and join the next bank. So that's, that system is the same. See, I think the politicians should be able to choose the highest ranks of the military because that's a political choice. And I think the system is fair. Has it always been that way? It's always been that way. But the practice generally has been that you go by seniority on the thing that this guy has already reached that place. All of them are good, but therefore... But there's nothing wrong about not keeping to that seniority. And I think this government has a lot of violated the norm, changed the norm, not violated. Changed the changed norm. Changed the norm in the sense that there are, we see now more cases where they do not always select the senior most senior. Like General Rawat, for example. Yeah, he was actually one of the examples. And uh, uh, even the uh, present air chief in the recent instance is also the case. So. But I think that's a political choice. And I think uh, politicians have the right to choose who the military leader should be. So that, that's not. But the politicization, which you are actually referring to, is whether the leadership is be able to ensure that the institution they command is not used for political purposes which is meant for party interests. I think that is where the the differentiation is. You know, all the time, the armed force is a political instrument. It's the instrument of the state. It can be used externally, it can be used internally. The question of politicization, which is now germane, is whether it is being used to benefit the party and not the state. That is, I think, where the differentiation comes. And that's when the, the leadership will have to take a call or have a dialogue with the leaders who are actually, if they have to carry out something. But that's all the things which are done normally 
behind doors. We don't know what the type of conversations which are taking place. And, you know, it, it might be taking place. We don't know whether it's taking place or not, but it might be. So, so I think we need to differentiate. What we have to watch out for is this difference, that it is not being used for the benefit of a party. As long as it is used for benefit of a, of a state or the nation, it's probably okay. So let's let's take a completely hypothetical example. And mind you, it's completely hypothetical. Let us say that there is a party in power which puts party above the nation. And at a particular point in time, maybe responding to a terrorist act, they want to do something macho for the sake of political optics. And they give the army order that, okay, let's just carry out what we will call a surgical strike. But basically, you will bomb a bunch of trees and nobody will be hurt. But this is what we need you to do for the sake of optics. What is military ethics in uh, this situation? Like, uh, as an officer, are you therefore, as a general, are you therefore bound to follow the orders of your, uh, say, the defense minister in this case? Or at some point, is there some point where you feel you would be duty bound to put your foot down? And if you put your foot down, would it be only be behind closed doors, after which you go ahead anyway, reluctantly? How does it all play out? I mean, and again, I'm thinking aloud is the first time I've thought of such a situation. So it has to be a dilemma for a person within the army, which thankfully, perhaps, in our 70-something years, we haven't faced it, but we could face in the future. Who knows? I know. Since it is hypothetical, the exact problem of what is the legal part of this, there are two issues. One is a legal issue which you're talking about. One is an ethical issue. Legally, the government is well within its rights to, to give the order. give the order. And they could actually justify it. For whatever, I mean, it's, it's no, they, they don't have a trace for party. They, I yeah. mean, that is, that is a concealed intent. Yeah. Which, which you can justify you, which, it for which, national purpose. Yeah, you can always justify it for national purpose. So the legal part is not what we are, we are talking about here. We are talking about the ethical part. And the ethical part can only actually come to some sort of thing through a discussion between the leaders themselves. And that is why this dialogue has to be constant. That if I feel something, I might, you can still overrule me, but the fact is that I, I should be able to express and say it. Or you can actually, you can take a decision yourself, which you think is the most important value that you have. But if the order is legal, the issue is they not, you know, can't possibly disobey it. But you know, in the real world, you can actually obey orders and still disobey it. You can do so many things. And so it's all up to you. But the fact is that ethical, disagreements will have to be dialogued. Which is very complicated. Like, for example, going back to Nazi Germany, for example, which has no relation to present times, let me clarify. But going back to Nazi Germany, if, if Hitler gives the order to one of his generals that, okay, this is what you have to do, you know, run Auschwitz for me. There's no dialogue there. It, it just becomes an ethical... Yeah, so so that's what uh, it is. So, down to the individual, so, so, I guess. So, so you, you as an individual, you can say that, I'm sorry, I resign, I, I am leaving. You find somebody else to do it. I mean, that that's what military leaders have normally done. Have done in the past. If they don't ethically agree with it, they find, find somebody else. Fair enough. I also want to sort of turn the economic lens on politics again, as I tend to do. And again, I'm just thinking aloud and because I'm completely ignorant of the subject, I'm probably unaware of other ways of doing this that have been discussed. But when you're talking, for example, about the two possible systems of promotion, that one is, as in the IES, perhaps you just go purely by seniority and you have a norm that the senior most guy gets a job. And the other might be that you put a bunch of names by seniority in front of a panel and the politician decides. Now, I'm thinking of the incentives in each case. 
if you go purely by seniority and if your whole career is determined by how you scored in that one exam when you were 20 or 21 then the incentive for every officer is therefore not to try very hard to excel because it doesn't matter your rank determines where you go no i think you got it you got it slightly mixed up you see the seniority on which you you pass out of the academy in the ias or the military is the seniority in your batch Okay. Right. Every time that you have to be promoted, you have to go through a promotion board, as we, as the Fair military enough. calls it. Yeah. So, but when you get promoted, you will still in your batch, you will still re- maintain that seniority which you had when you entered the service. Right. But you need to ha- go through a board. So, so the first guy who's number one in my batch may not even have become, a, let's say, a brigadier. Right. Because he he hasn't. Pass the colonel to brigadier. So uh, when you get promoted, board. you're immediately above him, right? Yeah, so, that's yeah. so. So, mm. that, so the seniority is enough for that. Problem. But I'm okay. So I got this wrong. But though uh, this is how incentives would have worked if it was seniority alone, but it's not. So that's sorted. But the other incentives I'm worried about is that if the politician makes a final call on who's going to be the general, then the incentives are towards politicization because then whoever the contenders are. in that panel which are put before him their incentives are to be political towards the political party in charge because that increases the chance of becoming general isn't that the case i mean that's the way the incentives work so i'm just sort no, of thinking absolutely right i mean this is these are human systems so what you're saying is actually is this will be the natural tendency tendency so this is now up to the maturity of the political leaders to deal with this issue you know do they actually want people who they think are of their kind or do they want good political leaders to lead armies into battle and win so this is a political choice and that is where that the the maturity of political leadership matters so i think in after 70 years of independence if you think that this this choice is still not to be left to the politicians i think it may not be fair no i think it has to be left to the politicians but are there other sort of systems which ameliorate the the, the way the incentive structure works here no it has to be a mix of two between merit which is uh, the thing and seniority because but of... merit can only be judged at that level it's a matter of what the the politician sees is the right guy wants to command and in a democracy i think that is their right they must be given the choice and unless you give the choice how is india going to actually mature as a democracy if you're going to keep seniority as the principle of this thing in which means you don't exercise your judgment how is this democracy going to mature because we, we, they might go wrong somewhere but unless you go wrong how do you get to being right at least mostly right yeah and and getting mature politicians is up to the voters which is you and me so <laughs> yeah, we I can't think. <laughs> blame anyone uh, uh, else for that so uh, you know i've taken so much of your time that i think that if uh, you know when you were a serving general if someone actually took so much of wasted so much of your time you would probably have court martialed them but i'll ask you two final questions to end it with one is a question on which we pretty much devoted an episode the last time we met but i think uh, for the benefit of listeners who may not have heard that yet it's worth asking it again which is how does being nuclear affect india's army because we've basically got deterrence in the sense that you know it almost equalizes india and pakistan in a sense because either can obliterate the other how does it sort of affect the role that the army plays the the role that the army plays is affected because nuclear weapons 
actually impact on the type of political objectives which you can achieve. Which essentially means that this idea that you can go and capture large parts of territory, let's say in Pakistan, is the one which we must disabuse ourselves of. Because that would require the quantum of force which can bring nuclear weapons to play. So what nuclear weapons has done is driven the armed forces to fighting to a level in which only the utility of force is only where you can achieve political objectives of a limited nature. Not that you can subjugate the enemy by defeating him. We don't need to march to Lahore ever again, basically. That's what it would mean. Because before nuclear weapons, you could actually have that guy surrender. That's what we did. And then he will listen to your terms. Nuclear weapons, especially between nuclear powers, has changed that, that paradigm. So the utility of force is not about imposing your will as much as to affect its will. And that is where the difference is. So this is actually what it has changed is the utility of force in political terms. And because that has changed, it will impact how you actually fashion and apply and use your armed forces. That's what has changed. Fascinating. And our episode on this was very interesting. And I also had an episode on the nuclear dynamics between India and Pakistan with Srinath Raghavan. So that will also be linked from the show notes. My final question, which will almost seem like a cliche to my listeners because I ask it to all my guests in terms of whatever is the subject we're discussing, is that when you sort of look at the state of the Indian Army and how fast or how slow reforms have happened, and what the current thinking uh, on it is, both from within and from outside, from the political class. Looking, say, forward into the next 20 years, where there'll be new geopolitical challenges and, the, you know, the whole military landscape will continue shifting and changing. What gives you hope and what gives you despair? I think the hope is that there is greater realization for the need for reform. The despair is our inability Despite knowing what we have to do, we cannot get it done. And unless we improve that, it is not that India does not know the type of reforms it wants. We simply are not able to implement it. And as I said, we can blame the military, we can blame the bureaucracy, but I think especially in the major reforms are concerned, we must hold political leadership to account for that. Because they are the ones which can make it happen like with CDS and the Department of Military Affairs. Which you feel is a a big move forward. Yes. On that hopeful note, General Menon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Amit. Always a pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can follow General Menon on Twitter at PrakashMenon51. That's at PrakashMenon51. You can follow me on Twitter at AmitVarma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. You can browse past episodes of The Scene and the Unseen at sceneunseen.in and thinkpragati.com. Thank you for listening and don't fight with anyone. Did you enjoy this episode of The Seen and the Unseen? If so, would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to seenunseen.in slash support and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking. Thank you.